historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. Welcome to the Inside Israel podcast. Today's episode is called Eliminating Iran's Nuclear Threat. Recently, the United States, that is the Biden administration, and Iran have undergone very extensive talks over whether Iran will continue to try to enrich uranium to a high level, hence trying to create perhaps a nuclear weapon, or whether they can reach a deal in which Iran will cease from doing so. The Iranian supreme leader has said that unless all the sanctions that were levied on Iran by the Trump administration are lifted right away, Iran will enrich uranium to at least 60%, which is very high and close to the ability of using that gas to create nuclear weapons. So talks are underway, and Israel, as always, is concerned. Now, we live in the 21st century, and when you think about it, no countries in this world have been threatened with annihilation, except that is Israel, and not once or twice, but actually on several occasions. The usual suspects are terror organizations, like Hamas, Islamic Jihad, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and even Hezbollah. But for a sovereign nation like Iran, to voice over and over again their desire to see Israel wiped out, that's not common. That's not just rhetoric. That is ideology. And I'll give you some examples. In 2005, Ahmadinejad, which was the Iranian president, called Israel a tumor. In 2012, that same Ahmadinejad said Israel should be eliminated. And in the same year, he called Israel once again a cancerous tumor. As a matter of fact, he went on to say that the Zionist regime and the Zionists are a cancerous tumor. Even if one cell of them is left in one inch of the Palestinian land, in the future, the story of Israel's existence will repeat again. In other words, wipe out the cancer down to the last cell. In May 2020, the Iranian Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei published a poster on his website that used the words, you ready? Final solution in calling for Israel's destruction. Now, you realize that the words final solution was last used by Nazi Germany in their effort of eliminating all Jews from the face of the earth. After strong criticism, world criticism, he said, look, we're not against Jews. We just want to eliminate Israel. We just want to eliminate the Zionist regime. You know what? Thanks, dude. I really appreciate the clarification. I appreciate that you only want to kill my family and friends in Israel and not my family and friends outside of Israel. In Israel, we take this seriously, and the question is, how do we counter it? And in an interview, the former head of the Mossad named Tamir Paldo said that Israel has really three options. One is to conquer Iran. Now, that's insane. Even Tamir Pardo, the former head of the Mossad, didn't think that Israel would go on to conquer Iran. It wouldn't work on a military level. It would not work on a moral level. So it's an option that he gives, but obviously not really attainable. The second is to bring about a change in the regime in Iran. Now, Israel's too small. It won't be able to really bring about a change in the regime in Iran. However, the Iranian population in general, and if you follow the news, you know there's been at least three times where the civilians rose up in massive numbers in trying to overthrow their theocratical dictatorship and were squashed by the Revolutionary Guard with great force and great violence. And so that hasn't worked yet. And the third option is to convince the political Iranian leadership that the price they'll pay for continuing their nuclear program is greater than what they can gain by stopping it. 
And that is no doubt Israel's strategy. But how do you go about implementing that strategy? And this is happening on three different levels. The first is to say, look, we're a small nation in the Middle East. We're powerful, but again, not an empire. And therefore, the world needs to deal with the Iranian nuclear threat. The world nations need to face the Iranian challenge. And we reach out to the world. But most of the world nations are dealing with their own issues. They're not concerned so much about Iran. Iran's not threatening them specifically. And so the world, the United Nations, the European Union, Russia, China, they prefer to be sidelined spectators. Israel puts its hope in the United States. And so let's take a quick look at the U.S. involvement uh, through some of the years. So first, George Bush. That is George W. Bush, George Bush Jr. The Bush administration had a three-pillar strategy in Iran. First is to impose penalties on Iran's nuclear advance. In other words, if you advance your nuclear program, we will hit you with sanctions. Second was to bolster America's allies on Iran's periphery, which means the countries that are in the Persian Gulf, Saudi Arabia, um, even Iraq at the time, which was not yet turned around, and of course Israel. And the third is to encourage Iran's pro-democracy movement to assert itself and claim its rightful place in the country's government. That basically means, again, an attempt of some kind of regime change. In his memoirs, Bush even wrote that he ordered the Pentagon to plan an attack on Iran nuclear facilities. And he writes, and I quote, I directed the Pentagon to study what would be necessary for a strike. And then he added, this would be to stop the bomb clock at least temporarily. Now, was this for real or did they have the Pentagon plan it so that someone would leak it out and then Iran would get the note of that and then they would be scared straight? Uh, who knows? But that is what George Bush at least says. If an attack had taken place by America, it would almost certainly have produced an all-out war in the Middle East. Could have been Iran blocking oil supplies in the Persian Gulf, shooting missiles, unleashing their militias and American bases and American allies in the Middle East, namely Israel, of course, but also Saudi Arabia, the Sunni Gulf states, etc. But it didn't happen, and now I want to go on to the Obama administration. Now, as far as Israel is concerned, and I want to emphasize that it is Israeli perspective among most military and political leaders, is that the Obama administration took a major gamble with Iran, thinking that Iran is less hostile than in the past. At the time of the Obama administration, the Sunni radical movements like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and others were strong, very strong, and they were taking over large parts of the Middle East. In order to counter that, the Obama administration would either have to put boots on the ground, which wasn't something they wanted to do, and rightfully so, perhaps. The other option was to strengthen the opposition to these radical Sunnis, and that would be the Shias. The Shiites are represented mostly, or led mostly, I should say, by Iran, and hence cutting a deal with Iran on their nuclear capabilities, alleviating sanctions, freeing up money for Iran to be able to counter the Sunni enemy, the Sunni radicals. But Israel says that the Obama nuclear deal of 2015 dismantled the previous regime of the UN sanctions that had all but ruined the Iranian economy in exchange for temporary limits on key facilities of Iran's nuclear weapon program and kind of a vague commitment never to develop nuclear weapons. As far as Israel's concerned, the Obama strategy, in many ways, boiled down to appeasement. And then came Donald Trump. Trump had been voicing his opinion opposition to the Obama-Iran deal for months before he was elected. Israeli politician, Israeli leadership, mainly Benjamin Netanyahu, decided to act in order to make sure that Trump backs out of the Iran deal. By the way, not all Israeli leaders agreed to this, but that was the method that was chosen by that government, again, the Benjamin Netanyahu government. And the method 
was, again, remember, to expose Iran to the world and to expose Iranian lies to the world. And so the Israeli Mossad, the Israeli Secret Service, the Israeli Mossad is comparable to the American CIA, decided to, actually the leadership decided, but the Israeli Mossad acted on it, and that was to steal the Iranian nuclear archive from Iran and show it to the world. Now realize, after Iran and the international community signed the nuclear treaty, the IAEA, which is the International Atomic Energy Agency, had the right to enter and visit any Iranian nuclear facility. As a result of that signature, the Iranians needed to hide all the paperwork dealing with their secret attempt to develop a mechanism for creating nuclear fusion and creating nuclear weapons, also nuclear warheads. This is because Iran always denied any attempt at achieving any kind of nuclear capability. They gathered all the secret documents, tens of thousands of documents, and all the documents were placed in a warehouse located in a commercial district far away from the military archives of Tehran. And this was in order not to raise suspicion. They also didn't place guards around the clock, again, so that nobody suspects, nobody looks at the site, nobody says, hey, what is this? Why are there guards guarding this? What they didn't know is that for two years, in 2016 and 2017, the Israeli intelligence agency, again, the Mossad, spied on the Iranians and watched the transfer of the documents to the inconspicuous warehouse. On January 31st, 2018, around 10.30 at night, Mossad agents entered the warehouse. The agents carried welding machines burning at least 2,000 degrees. That's hot enough to cut 32 Iranian-made safes. In most of the Mossad operations, agents just photographed or copied material without leaving a trace. But in this case, the agents took all the material with them. And this was for two reasons. One, the photocopying would take a long time. The guards were scheduled to arrive early in the morning. There just wasn't enough time to sift through the material and put it neatly back in place. And this would endanger the agents if it took too long. The second reason was to show the world, and mainly again, the United States and the CIA, original documents so that when Iranians claim that they're forged, it would be no. They're not forged. This is the real thing. The Mossad agents took with them 50,000 pages and 163 discs, which contained memos, videos, blueprints, and much more. Apparently, only a couple of dozen agents participated in the operation. It took six hours and 29 minutes to deactivate the alarms, raid the warehouse, break through two doors and several armored safes, and leave with a half of a ton of secret material back to Israel. Exactly three months after the operation, Benjamin Netanyahu, then the Prime Minister of Israel, exposed the operation and documents, of course, only some of the documents, at a press conference. This was all that Trump needed to solidify his withdrawal from the nuclear agreement. Harsh sanctions were imposed that prohibited Iran from using dollars, for instance, the SWIFT banking system, so they now have to use only cash, prohibited their exports of oil. Any company dealing with Iran would not be able to do so in America, do business in America. Trump wanted to bring Iran down on its knees and force them to make the deal that he wanted. But the Iranian leadership held their ground even though their population was suffering greatly. Now, there's a question here. If Obama's Iran deal was a mistake, could the mistake be undone by withdrawing from it? Trump's unilateral backing out of the deal left the U.S. without the support of the international community. It was only the U.S. versus Iran. So the Iranians waited it out 
They hope Trump loses the election, the second election, and their wish came true. I'm personally not sure at all that the Iranians would have survived economically a second Trump term. But again, their wish came true and Trump was out of office. And now the question is, what will Biden do? What will the Joe Biden administration do? That remains to be seen. The Iranian Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei, addressing the issue recently, and I said this before, said that Iran will enrich uranium up to 60%, which is a threat to the world. If you want us not to, Khamenei says, then drop all the sanctions first. And this is clearly a negotiating tactic. So if the first Israeli method was to expose Iran to the world, the second is using covert operations to delay the program, eliminating nuclear scientists, military personnel involved with the nuclear program, and stall the long-range missile program. So I want to give you a few examples, none of which Israel has ever taken responsibility for. On January 2010, a man named Masoud al-Mahmoudi was killed by a small bomb activated from long range. In November 2010, Majid Shahariri was killed in his car in northwestern Tehran. Apparently, two people on a motorcycle attached a magnet bomb to his car. In July 2011, Darwish Ghazai was shot dead at his front door. January 2012, Ahmedi Roushan also killed in his car by motorcyclists that attached a magnet bomb to his car. In November 2020, the head of the Iranian nuclear program, Muhsan Fakharizada was killed with precision face imaging technology, a remote gun using satellite, killed only him even though his wife was sitting 10 inches away from him and he was also escorted by 11 bodyguards. Now all of these people were involved heavily in the Iranian nuclear program, but it wasn't only scientists. In January 2015, a general in the Revolutionary Guard named Ali Mahmoud is killed in Syria, very close to the Israeli border. In May 2019, a general named Khaj Raza Salman killed in Iraq by gunmen. November 2011, Hassan Tahari Mukdam, the general in charge of development of missiles, was killed on a missile base. A strong explosion actually destroyed much of that base. Many more have been eliminated. If you ask Israelis, they will say, we don't know if we did it, but since it was done, it was done as a necessity. No Israelis will ever be joyful of these people dying. The third level at which Israel deals with in trying to stop and eliminate the Iranian nuclear program is tempering with their military and nuclear facilities. Last 14 years, dozens of military and nuclear facilities in Iran have been tampered with damaging them or even putting them out of commission. Let me give you a few examples of this as well. So in November of 2007, a series of explosions took place at a military industrial site in the city of Parchin, where Shihab medium-range ballistic missiles were being manufactured. In February 2008, a massive explosion rocked the city of Tabriz at a ballistic missile base. Same happened in October 2010 at the Imam Ali Shihab 3 missile base. November 2011, an explosion was reported in the city of Isfahan in a nuclear facility for uranium conversion. July 2020, an explosion occurred at Natanz, causing significant damage to the uranium enrichment facility. And then again in 2021. Now, in 2021, in April 2021, explosives blew up the power grid of Natanz. The backup generators were also taken out, causing a total blackout in the facility. It is known that centrifuges that spin at high speed are needed to power down slowly. If they don't, they vibrate violently, causing damage to their rotors and bellows, fracturing, shattering, and even disintegrating. These are only a few examples. There have been many, many attacks. It seems as two weeks don't go by without us hearing about 
something else malfunctioning on one of these bases in Iran. And now I want to tell you a little bit about the world's first digital cyber weapon. So at the beginning of 2010, inspectors from the IAEA, once again, International Atomic Energy Agency, visited the Natanz uranium enrichment plant, and they noticed that the centrifuges used to enrich this uranium were malfunctioning at a very, very quick rate. They were totally puzzled. They couldn't figure it out. And the Iranian technicians that were there were also completely baffled. Now, a few months later, unrelated to the uranium enrichment facility, a computer security firm in Russia was asked to troubleshoot a series of computers in Iran that were crashing and rebooting over and over and over again. The Russian firm found a malicious or several malicious files on one of the systems. And as the news of this spread, the Iranians connected the dots and ran tests on their uranium enrichment facility. And that's when they discovered that the same type of malicious files were also on there. It was given the name Stuxnet, and it was unlike any other computer virus before it. Until Stuxnet, all the viruses, what they did was hijack computers and or stealing information from them. But Stuxnet inflicted a lot of damage and destruction. The brilliance of this virus was that it made the centrifuges, again, enriching uranium, spin much faster than they were supposed to, eventually causing irreparable damage. But the monitor of the technicians that were running the centrifuges showed that they were spinning at a normal rate and they were basically working as they should be working. Many other viruses have been discovered since and perhaps some are still undiscovered. This was made somewhere I don't know, Israel, the United States, together, who knows, in order to stall and even try to eliminate the ability to enrich uranium and again, from that, make a nuclear weapon. I've explained the three different levels of action, which was exposing Iran to the world, eliminating scientists running the Iranian nuclear program, and military leaders building ballistic missiles. And the third was tampering with Iran's nuclear and military facilities. And I know I said there was three actions, but there's actually a fourth as well. And this one is the least popular and also the most dangerous. It is a military strike. This is very controversial in Israel, and if it happens, It'll only be if Israel feels the Iranians are extremely close to a bomb. Has anyone ever attacked the nuclear facility of a sovereign country? The answer is yes. It happened twice, and both of them were by Israel. The first was in 1981, and that was against Saddam Hussein's nuclear reactor in Iraq. The second was in 2007, and that one blew up the nuclear reactor that was being built by Bashar al-Assad of Syria. And let me just tell you a few words about each of them. On June 7, 1981, eight Israeli F-16 fighter jets took off from southern Israel on the way to Iraq. They were escorted by F-15s in case there's a dogfight, and these planes had to fly over unfriendly skies, namely Saudi Arabia and Jordan. They flew at a height of about 100 feet above ground. That's it. They used a lot of the ravines uh, in the Saudi desert. The reason they flew so low is to not to be detected by radar. And they also had an issue of having enough gasoline to get to Iraq, bomb the facility, maybe engage in a dogfight, and then come back to Israel. It was the first time in aviation history that extra gasoline tanks were actually placed on the airplane. Using those gasoline tanks somewhere over Saudi Arabia, emptying them out, they were then dropped over the desert of Saudi Arabia and are still there. These planes arrived at the Osirak nuclear plant in Iraq. It took exactly two minutes and 16 bombs to completely destroy the Iraqi nuclear facility. They continued, or rather yet, returned to Israel undetected. They arrived in Israel all safe and sound. 
the UN condemned Israel, even the United States, under Ronald Reagan at the time, delayed shipment of fighter planes to Israel. But it was more of a slap on the hand because a few months later, they shipped them anyway. The reason Israel was condemned was because the thought was Saddam Hussein was not creating a nuclear weapon. Ten years later, after Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, George Bush Sr. united a large international military campaign ousting Saddam from Kuwait. At that time, the IAEA approved the fact that yes, Saddam Hussein was building a nuclear weapon, and 10 years after the Israeli condemnation, the world was kind of thanking Israel for having taken that out because probably Kuwait would still be under Iraq if they had a nuclear weapon. The second attack was on Syria in 2007. And this is actually an interesting story because Israel wasn't sure that Syria was actually building a nuclear plant until the head of the Syrian nuclear program, his name was Uthman, showed up in London. He put his briefcase and computer in his London hotel room and went away for shopping, which is something you don't really do, but he did. At the time he went for shopping, Mossad uh, unit of agents that broke into his room, got into his computer, and basically downloaded all their information from his computer. When it was assessed later in Israel, they discovered blueprints of a nuclear reactor and photos of him, the head of the Syrian nuclear program, meeting with nuclear scientists from North Korea. It was then that Israel decided that we need to take out the nuclear plant, and the United States was approached. As a matter of fact, the Israeli Prime Minister at the time, Ehud Olmert, asked the United States to attack the facility, but Bush refused. In order to make sure the facility was going to be nuclear, a special commando unit called Sayeret Matkal was sent to the facility, of course, completely camouflaged. They collected earth specimens, which proved that there was radioactivity going on in that area. Israel set the 6th of September as the date for the attack. On that day, or perhaps the day before, Another special unit was sent to Syria, landed somewhere in Syria, made their way to the nuclear facility, but far enough away to be able to pinpoint where to bomb using, most likely, laser beams. Now, the Israeli Air Force also used another technique of electronic warfare. It's actually called false sky picture. It is a system in which you take over the enemy's air defenses, computers, and you make them believe, via this electronic warfare, that the skies are clear. There's no one in the sky, no one's attacking you, while in fact, the Israeli airplanes were bombing the nuclear plant. The Israeli airplanes, as well as the special units on the ground, made their way back to Israel, all safe, all unharmed. There was no condemnation this time, not by the UN, not by anyone else. Most likely because the Syrians themselves denied that a nuclear plant was attacked. As a matter of fact, the Syrians said that the Israeli Air Force attacked an army base that was being built, that was under construction somewhere in the middle of the desert, and it had no relevance. The good thing about that notice of the Syrians was that they would not react. Once they said it was nothing, then there was no reason for them to react. Three years later, in 2010, Syria was involved in a full-scale civil war. And ironically, it was the Sunni radicals of ISIS that had taken over the area called Deir al-Zur, in which the nuclear reactor was in. Now imagine if Israel had not bombed that nuclear reactor. So, is a military strike possible on the Iranian nuclear facilities? In principle, yes. Or in theory, yes. But it's much more complicated. First of all, not all the facilities are necessarily known about. So you may bomb some, but miss others. Secondly, the facilities are spread all over Iran, which would mean it wouldn't be just a one pinpoint strike. Third, 
An attack may not destroy Iran's capability, it may just delay it a little bit, and then you haven't really done that much. Another reason that would be complicated was that Iran will surely react, and if it reacts, it'll react perhaps in all that war. Are you willing to risk that? And then, Israel really cannot attack without an American green light, which I don't really see coming in the near future, especially since there are negotiations going on between, as I said before, the Biden administration and the Iranian leadership. Soon, we will be able to tell if indeed there's a deal with Iran that will delay, stop, or even eliminate their nuclear capabilities and their nuclear desire. Then we will pick this back up and have another episode to see what had happened. Please log on to InsideIsrael.fm to log on to the rest of our podcast episodes. You can also access the episodes on Apple, on Spotify, on Google Podcasts, and much more.